Have a deal in mind and a group of investors ready to go? Use TribeVest to pool your capital together through a multi-member LLC. TribeVest has streamlined the group investment process, making it easy, quick, and safe to do business with others. Start a tribe and invite your partners to join. Then you can use the platform to collaborate with your partners, pool capital, and manage your joint investments. I'm in 12 tribes myself. It is a great way to learn from others, spread risk, and get into deals at lower minimums. Go to TribeVest.com to get started today. I promise that I'm never going to do the W-2 thing ever again. Come hell or high water, I got to make this work. Because I knew that if I bet on myself, I'm a sure thing. Right? So it, it, it's, I'm not going to say it's an easy chasm to cross. It's extremely hard, right, when you're first starting. It's scary. It really is. Because when you're accustomed to getting a check every two weeks, just rolling in, whether you show up or not, it's very hard to give that up and walk away from a six-figure job at the sea level to go do something on your own and you've never done it and to that scale anyway. It was scary. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. This is Ashley Wilson from Bardown Investments, and you are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm excited today to have Agostino Pintus with us. He is the founder and CEO of Bulletproof Cashflow, where he applies nearly two decades of real estate experience to source, negotiate, and acquire commercial properties. He is also the host of the Bulletproof Cashflow podcast. Agostino, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Jim, thanks for having me on. Greatly appreciate it. Well, it's great to have you. And, you know, the way we usually start out is just talk about your journey. How did you get into real estate? Then, how'd you decide to become an, an operator? And, how'd you decide what asset classes you're going to get into? So, if we can just kind of get your backstory, that'd be great. Absolutely. So, I wish I could say that I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I certainly was not. I grew up in Canada and I had this vision, this dream of working in tech and owning my own software company and doing all that stuff. So growing up as a kid, I was one of these, these young kids that was really, really good with computers and technology. And I figured I was, was going to do that for the rest of my life. Fast forward of uh, you know, maybe a bunch of years, I was a C-level executive in corporate running, running technology for this large, large publicly traded company. And a friend of mine says, this is about almost 20 years at this point uh, from today, about 20 years ago, uh, says to me, hey, you know what? You ought to be doing real estate. You ought to invest in real estate. So I started doing single family homes. Started buying single families, some small multifamily. This is before the 2008 crash. And um, it did, it, you know, it, it, went, it, went over, it went fine, you know, because the reason why was because I stayed in my lane and I underwrote the deals extremely conservatively, properly, did not do variable interest rates or, you know, all that crazy stuff that was happening back then, which is the same stuff that was happening similarly to now, um, or at least until recently. And, um, you know, th that, that discipline of how to acquire assets really made its way through the entire, everything else that we do, right? So um, fast forward a bunch more years, about seven years ago, I quit corporate just done. I was just disenfranchised of the whole thing. I was uh, working in corporate, uh, running, running this another large technology group, and I was exposed. You know, if, if you think about it, the, the guy who hired me on was um, the, 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 the technology was struggling. I, I was brought in. I fixed it. He quits. New guy comes in, hates me, wants to bring in his own guys. This is typical, you know, C-level CEO guys do this kind of stuff all the time. New guy comes in, wants to hire his own people. And I'm thinking to myself, look, I'm in my 40s. How many more times can I possibly do this? Put myself, my family at risk. And I decided to quit corporate and focus on my real estate business. Because that was the one thing that real estate, real estate kept me going. Um, even during the downturns, again, investing wisely, getting the right deals, that kind of thing. So today, we now do... Workforce housing, stabilized you know, B, C type of assets. We do development, either ground up or adaptive reuse. And we have a net lease fund, a blind pool net lease fund 
that acquires corporate-backed or franchisee-backed assets only. So we're not doing you know, some strip center in the middle of nowhere that doesn't have a corporate guarantee. We're doing single tenant net lease. So you think of like Dollar Tree, Dollar General, uh, maybe VCA Animal Hospital, you know, uh, DaVita, uh, Dialysis Center, those types of places, right? Corporate backed, very strong tenants, not gonna disappear tomorrow. Those are the types of deals that we're doing, which for today is a great, great place to be. Uh, we have a fourth line of business, which is our education business. And the education business, is um, where we basically show people how to get into the multifamily world, right? It's a 50 week mastermind, 50 weeks. The way I saw it, you cannot learn everything you possibly need to know in a span of a week. You just can't do it. I think 50 weeks a, a year, you can, you can learn a lot and there's enough time, enough support in the community to get your deal done. So that's why we made it that way. And our students, they're, they're super excited to be in there. We have deal, they're closing deals, they're doing, they're getting into the first ones in some cases, which is great. I'm, very, I'm always excited to see that. And um, I, I like seeing them succeed. You know, that's why we did it this way. And I'm, and I'm the one that's delivering all the material as well, right? So it isn't like I just pass it on to some other guy who's never done stuff before. I'm, I'm delivering it, right, personally. So that's, um, that's a big, big thing that we're doing. So. Long story short, yeah, it's uh, we're still buying stuff today. We're, we're a lot more cautious, right, these days, of course, just because of where financing is. But there's still deals out there. You just have to know what you're looking for, and you have to be prepared to, to, for risk-adjusted return, right? Like the net lease business is one of our favorite things to do these days just because of what it is. So, Right. Uh, yeah. So let me ask you, when you were working your W-2 job, you're in corporate America, and you wanted to to leave. You had already started real estate investing. How did you make the transition to, you know, you're not just going to be investing for your own account. You're going to be an operator and, and taking other people's money and syndicating these deals. How did you kind of get the courage or or maybe, you know, the, the guts to do that? You know, Jim, that's it. it uh, this is I'm going to pick up a, a Grant Cardone saying it takes courage to make money. You probably heard him say that before. It's, it's 100% true because it's easy to look back now and say, yeah, now I understand how to do it. You know, when you're working a W-2 job, the W-2 is paying you just enough to keep you from quitting. That's it. Right. Conceivably, you could be worth more if you bet on yourself. I know all that stuff now, but when you're in that position of, of getting a W-2, it's almost like you're, you're it's almost like you're, you're, you're taking a hit. You know, it's like. Where's my next hit? Where's my two weeks later? Where, where is it? Where is it? You're looking at you're looking for your check, right? And I was scared to death, man. I was scared to death. And I'm not gonna lie, it was a scary time because I, at the time I didn't know what a mentor was. I didn't pick that up. I, I just it, was, it wasn't in my frame of reference. I just wasn't doing it. So I ended up getting virtual mentors and learning the business on my own. And um, the biggest part of it, though, was I had to make a promise to myself. A promise that I'm never going to do the W-2 thing ever again. Come hell or high water, I got to make this work. Because I knew that if I bet on myself, I'm a sure thing. Right? So it, it, it's, I'm not going to say it's an easy chasm to cross. It's extremely hard, right, when you're first starting. It's scary. It really is. Because when you're accustomed to getting a check every two weeks, just rolling in, whether you show up or not, it's very hard to give that up and walk away from a six-figure job at the sea level to go do something on your own and you've never done it and to that scale anyway, it was scary. It was, I'm not gonna lie. But you know what? I, that's why we have the mastermind. We do we do our mentoring. Like we, we help people get in. They're not doing it alone. I, I did it the hard way. You don't have to do it that way. <laughs> well, and that, that's the whole point of left field investors also, right? Is we're, we're learning from other others' mistakes. In fact, one of our founders, uh, Steve Sue, wrote a book about, you know, that he had 14 years of investing experience and he highlighted his 20 biggest mistakes because that's how we learn. That's how we shortcut. You're doing it on the operator side and left field investors, we're trying to do it on the on the LP side. Yeah, that's that's the biggest thing, Jim, is that 
I'll get approached by individuals all the time. Hey, do you want to partner up on a deal? You know, and I underwrite the deal. I look at the deal. It's like, this deal is stupid. It makes no sense to me. I don't understand this thing, right? And usually, I mean, I'm not knocking the new folks by any stretch, but it's like operating a deal is more than just buying it and, and, and hope for the best and turning it over to property management. There's, there's a significant amount of work in operating the asset. And you also have to understand who is on the GP side. What are they about? Are they sound individuals that are going to be good fiduciaries, good stewards of your money? And that's, that's, that's one of the hardest things, you know? And, uh, I mean, we've been in this thing. I've been in this thing for seven years now at this point, right? It's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, even even in today's market right now, it's like it's there's, there's so much opportunity out there. You just got to know how to find it. But, you know, I was talking to Rod Khalif the other day. I mean, he's doing giant deals right now. Other guys are doing big deals, you know. So it's like there there's still deals to be had. But part of it is, is understanding who is representing you and your capital when you're doing a deal. You have to understand who it is, right? I'm a, I'm a huge, huge, huge believer of having the transparency with, with the investors, getting the connection, giving them access to the portal. We're, we're doing our show every, we do a show every week, but aside from that, we're posting stuff on, on YouTube and other social platforms all the time. We're very, very visible. It isn't like we're just taking money and hide. I, I think that um, all those things are there to give our investors the comfort in knowing that, yeah, we're still here. We're still, we're still working tremendously hard to multiply the cash that was that was entrusted to us to make things happen. So uh, a lot, and the thing is though, is that a lot of GPs don't think that way, unfortunately, they just don't, right? Um, where I'm, I'm taking it as like, at some point I would love to take this thing and go public. I, I wanna have that as an option. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. But if, you're, if the plan is to go public, you certainly can't be you know, doing crazy missteps and doing stupid things. Right. Yeah. And if you're going to partner up with some, like if I'm going to partner up with someone else, they have to be on the same path. If they're not, I, I don't even want to partner with them. I'll stay away from them. You know? Yeah. No offense to them. I just don't want to do it. Well, and, and on that note, you know, how do you vet the partners that you work with together on, on different projects? Because I've seen that you're, you're partnering with, with people on, on, I don't know if all of the deals, but uh, plenty of them. Um, how do you vet those partners and how do you make sure that you're able to work with them and they're able to work with you and that it's a, it's a quality partnership that benefits investors? You know, uh, it's going to sound weird, Jim, but the clues at the very, very, very beginning are so glaring that to choose to ignore them is, is a huge mistake. I'll give you an example. One guy that wanted to partner with me, we, we would set up these times to meet up and discuss deals and discuss lending and whatever, right? Like it's very, very early. We didn't do any deals, but we'd set, he'd set up the meeting. He'd set up the time. I show up usually 10 minutes early, right? Because it's the right thing to do. The guy wouldn't show up till like, you know, like say he sits up for six o'clock, wouldn't show up to 6.30, 6.35. But he did this consistently. If you can't even honor a commitment to show up to a freaking meeting, what makes you think you're gonna, he's going to honor any other commitments that are in his life? Now, I know it's an extreme example, but the, if the, someone does that kind of thing, always all the time and they're the ones that set the meeting in the place right and it happens like four times in a row you know what it's okay i'm good no thanks i mean i i literally make decisions just like that because how you do one thing is how you do everything and if the guy is late on on uh, just showing up to a meeting and it's and it's just shrug okay is it also okay if they if they skip on a mortgage who cares right uh, is it okay if they don't return the phone call to a lender? Who cares? If they don't return a phone call to an, an investor, it's okay. I'll get to it later. Those things matter. Be punctual. I mean, it's, it's so easy. You just have to show up for most of the time. I mean, aside from that, I, there's also the technical skill set. Do they have the skill set to properly talk to individuals and if their function is to raise capital, for instance, can they talk the talk, you know, 
instill the confidence into the, into the other individual that they're they're the ones that should be investing in. There's things like that. That's almost like bread and butter, right? That's stuff that if someone's good at it, they just have it. Most of the times, believe it or not, Jim, if they can't even show up to a meeting, I kill the deal. I won't even do. I won't do the deal with them. I, that's that's. That is something that I found through my experience, years of experience, not even before corporate, that if a vendor couldn't show up on time, if a partner couldn't show up on time or a potential partner, you know what? Chances are this is not going to work out well. So I yeah. just go ahead and kill it. You know, yeah, there's, plenty of other, there's plenty of other people to be doing business with. And, and that's exactly, it's the same philosophy we have, again, at Left Field Investors when we're trying to find sponsors and, you know, maybe we send them an email or, or call them and, and it takes days to get a response and then the response isn't thorough. You know, we just say, look, there's there's plenty of other operators out there. If we're not important enough to you for you to get back to us, then, you know, I'm, I'm moving on. And so that, that moves into like, how does a, a an LP then vet an operator who has multiple partners, right? So maybe my relationship is with you or maybe my relationship is with your partner. So how as an LP do I get comfortable? Do I need to get comfortable with all of the partners on a deal or just my main contact. And then I trust that my main contact is vetting the other operators. So how, how do you look at that from an LP perspective? Well, in the same way that I, that I vet out uh, partners, um, I would hope that the LP would vet me out, but also, you know what? They should at least consider who else is on the team. Who else is on, who else is there? Right. I mean, here's the thing. Here's an example, Jim. You're, you're in the, I think you're you're in the podcasting world, so you totally get this. A long, long, long time ago, uh, four and a half years ago, I was about to interview this. It was a it was a, a man and a woman. I did, and what what I always do is I always research the individual before I bring them on. Like I got to know who's coming on the show. What are they going to talk about? I want to know all that stuff. I won't even have them on the show if I don't like them. Right. They can't pass. I don't, I don't want them. So the, this this was the cannabis business of which I don't really do too much in. Or I shouldn't say too much. I don't do anything in cannabis. I don't do it. I just I'm not I'm not a drug drug guy of any sort. I barely even drink. Like I stay away from all that stuff. I have nothing against it. But people do it. Not my business. It's just just how I live my life. Right. But it was a cannabis farming type scenario. And I thought it might be an interesting discussion to have, right? Let's talk about the financing, the money around such deals. Well, it turns out that her partner, this lady's partner, had gone to jail for fraud or something at some point in the past. And I found out that the research, I call her up and I said, look, you're free to come on the show to discuss that specific topic. Your partner is not permitted to come on the show. I'm not going to have a, 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 whether the guy was found guilty or not. I don't want nothing to do. I don't want any association with my name and this individual. Right. I don't even want it to come up on a freaking Google search. Right. Is that a little bit extreme? Maybe. But you know what? If, if there's a level of risk involved there, why should I take it for a podcast? Not worth it. There's plenty, just to your point, there's plenty of other people that are very well qualified that I can be speaking to that can still deliver value to the audience. I don't even think I even aired that episode, actually. <laughs> that, that episode didn't even air, actually. It was because it was so bad. And it sounded like she couldn't really do the interview without him. So I didn't even. The, so the quality of that episode was so bad that I didn't even air it. I just, I just deleted it. It was, it was, so, it was terrible, right? So uh, the, the point is, is that who you choose to associate with matters, even if it is a simple podcast. You know, uh, that's – but – to answer you, that, that's that's a long-winded answer to your short question, right? It's um, I, I my my investors, and that's another reason why it's like if I don't like the deal, if I don't like if I don't trust the GP, that's a second level. If I don't trust them, or the operating agreement doesn't contain very very specific language that if something goes sideways, I can take it over, right? Sometimes there's language in there as a GP. That says, like, you know, okay, great. So if, if, if something goes sideways, I'm able to take this deal over and the lender's going to allow me to do it. If, that, if, that, if I can't do that deal, if I, can't, if I can't add that language, nothing else to talk about. I'm not doing a deal. Sorry. Go find someone else. I don't, I don't need your deal, right? 
So um, there's a lot of guys out there that operate solely on those fees and nothing wrong with that. I, I want to be able to sleep at night and not have to worry about having a crappy deal on my hands that I have to contend with and waste everybody's time and money. It's, it's ridiculous, in my opinion. Let, let me ask you this. Um, so when you're partnering, and I've never really thought about this before, but when you're partnering with somebody else, you know, you talked about the operating agreement. Whose operating agreement do you use? Do you use yours? Do you use theirs? Or do you modify it? Because there might be some things that you do differently um, than, than other people. So how do you, how do you come together on the operating agreement? Well, I mean, you add the language to it. I mean, it's usually, um, we use like a, a, some sort of an SEC attorney that we both know, both familiar with whatever. Right. And we just talk about, talk it through the intent. And, and it goes both ways too, by the way, the operating agreement is not written a one way street, you know, but, if the roles and responsibilities are, okay, Jim, you're going to be the the, the, sole, the main operator. I'm bringing some of the money, but I'm going to be operating much smaller, have a smaller role. If that's defined in the operating agreement, that's, of course, written by, it depends on, on who wrote, who creates the LLC. It's usually, uh, in my case, the SEC attorney handles that. Then we would say, okay, Jim, if occupancy goes below this threshold for this length of time, I will force a change and you're not going to say anything about it. It's defined in the operating agreement. Is, are, we, are we cool with that? And you might say, sure. Or if you say, well, no, because you know, I'm getting a cut of the property management fee or whatever. Right. Then clearly again, this is not going to work. Right. That's those are the types of things. In my opinion, as a GP, if I'm going to be the steward of other people's money, if I'm bringing other people's money to the table here, Right. I know what I can do. And I don't if I don't know these other individuals, that's a problem. Right. And I would I would just negotiate all that stuff in there. And if they have a problem with it, then you know what? Y'all go somewhere else then. Because I'm not gonna put I, I don't want to have to answer to my investors or something that this guy screwed up. That's the reason why. I don't want to be responsible for nine million dollars or whatever. I'm thinking, thinking of the last example that, that, that I just had the other day. I, I don't want to be responsible for nine million and put into a deal and they don't perform because of something that they did or then having to call them up and, and rattle their cages and not getting any responses. I don't need any of that in my life. <laughs> I don't need that. Right. And it's that, that to me, that's, that's something that on, on this, on this circuit, on this podcast circuit, have you ever heard a GP ever, ever say anything like that before? Probably not. They don't say that. This, this is the, this is the reality that we live in. Right. The, and this is, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. It's hard work. I'm not afraid of the hard work. I'm not complaining about it either. I'm not, but this is, this is reality here. And I think that for, for many, for many GPs, they paint a picture. Everything's going to be perfectly fine. And not, it's not always the case. Sometimes stuff breaks. It's business. You fix it. And you, it, it's the same thing that happens in corporate. Every, there's, there's always some sort of problem in corporate. That's why all those people are there. <laughs> the reason why um, uh, GM uh, employs, you know, whatever it is, 50,000 people is not because everything runs perfectly. <laughs> True. <laughs> right? That's not the reason. So, well, yeah, but the, ask, that's the critical aspect. So still, still speaking about the operating agreement and sometimes things going wrong, you know, LPs in, in the left field investor community have experienced some capital calls over the past year, which, you know, you, you don't want to have capital calls, but sometimes they're the best thing. Um, and, you know, each LP has to decide whether to participate in those um, with the, when the operating agreement allows it to be an option, right? But then there's other operating agreements that require the capital call and everyone to participate and not just they get diluted, but they would be in default. So can you talk about the different approaches and and why you choose to um, require participation in your capital calls rather than just have people diluted. So the reason why let's go, let's take a step back for a second. Why is there a capital call to begin with? Right. In general, I'm not saying in my deals, generally speaking, when there is a capital call, it's usually because the, maybe the, there's, there was something wrong with the deal at the very, very beginning. Maybe they was maybe they overpaid for it. Maybe they uh, they underestimated the amount of the repairs. Maybe it was the, the management just wasn't there, 
All right. They just didn't perform the way they should have. Okay. Could be a variety of different reasons. Fortunately, when I do my deals, I, I build on a huge margin of error and, um, and we don't, uh, like, how should I put it? Uh, we, we have, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a case where if we do have language in our operating agreement for capital call, cause just in case you need one. And if you do need a capital call, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a terrible situation that nobody really wants to get into, but at the same time, what's the alternative? Like, you know, like if we're all going to be into this deal together, uh, we have to make, we have to try to save and rescue the asset. That's, that's the long and short of it. I mean, no one wants to do it. Right. So I guess uh, the the question is, so in in your, in the documentation for, for those that require participation, you're saying, Hey, everyone invested in this deal. We're, we're super conservative. We don't want to do a capital call, but whatever the reason is we're doing it, we want everybody to participate because there's been some conversations in our community that say, Hey, if, if there's a required capital call, meaning if there's a capital call, you're required to participate. Some people don't want to invest in a deal like that. And where others, you know, say, well, if I'm going to participate, I want everybody to participate. So I'm, what, what's the, is, I don't know if there's a right way or a wrong way. I just want to kind of understand the, the mindset of, of each, you know, for, for each operator, on whether they allow dilution or they or they don't, they they push you into default. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's more along the lines of just what we're trying to do is we're trying to get everybody to participate in the deal, right? That's ultimately what it is. We don't we don't want to hold people into default. We don't want to do any of that stuff. But at the same time, too, if it's a case where um, if we don't get the participation. And the deal suffers. Like again, what's what's the alternative? Like, not everybody. Listen, I, I do you think it's it's fun trying to run an asset, um, and and there's and there's problems to contend with. Nobody wants to deal with that. Nobody does, right? And like, because I'm not saying that that the role of the LP is not important. With what I'm about to say here, but it certainly is. Obviously, they entrusted us with their cash. But at the same time, too, what we have to do is now we have to put that cash to work to do all of the effort to fix the problems. And at times, you know, those problems are, they can be significant. I mean, it's, and the good thing is, I will say this, the people on our side, whenever we're, we're working to try to resolve issues, I mean, these these folks are working all, all day, every day on weekends. They are killing themselves. We are killing ourselves to rescue deals sometimes. Nobody wants to, I mean, we don't, we don't like to have to do it. Yeah. Again, what other choice is there, right? That's the part that sucks. You know, that's. Yeah. And it's complicated, right? Because, uh, you know, a couple of deals I'm in that had um, capital calls and they were optional um, enough. People didn't participate that then the deal, you know, they, they couldn't, they couldn't follow through. So they had to end up selling the deal. They couldn't rescue it. So I think, I think there's pluses and minuses um, for, for the capital call provisions. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, and, and that's primarily what it is. Now, again, fortunately, for some of these assets, they might be thirty k a door to anywhere between thirty to forty k a door, roughly, is probably where you know probably where the average sits in that in that range. We got a lot of assets, so the, there's a lot of our, there's a lot of equity already in the deal to begin with, compared to when we bought it to where it is today, right? Um, I really do believe that once everything is stabilized. And uh, we get this thing to where it needs to be. It's going to be a, a killer deal. It's but to your point, we said a second ago, the capital call scenario, tons of them. I was talking to my SEC attorney the other day. He asks me, he goes uh, a couple weeks ago, actually, not the other day, a couple weeks ago. Hey, have you guys done any capital calls yet? Because that's that's have you done it yet? Like because yeah. everybody's doing it, and yeah, it's it, hey, listen, no. Like I said, nobody wants to. But have you priced? Have you priced out uh, the price, or have you looked at the price of gas lately, or the price of bread, or the price of the basic home things that you use every day for groceries or whatever? Anything like there's there's scenarios where we price certain things out in a certain way, and they the, the needle moved moved not just on us, moved on everybody. Yeah. 
And and that's why yeah. you know our, our community is so interested in topics like this. It's difficult to talk about, but it's important it because you know when when we invested or when I invested in certain deals, you know when I was first starting out, I didn't know to read the capital call provisions and really understand what I was. Even if I did read it, I, I didn't understand necessarily what I was reading. And so now, years later, it's coming back, and I have you know here's a capital call that's optional. Here's one that's required. Well, I didn't. I wasn't in the right space when I signed those documents to I'm, I shouldn't say it that way. I didn't do the due diligence I should have in some of my early deals. And so now I'm just now reading. I'm like, oh, that's a surprise. Well, it shouldn't have been. I should have read that, you know, PPM or that operating agreement. So it's not all on the operator, but it is a difficult conversation. Hi, this is Zach Hackenstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise 48 Equity. At Rise 48, we've successfully purchased 38 different properties worth over $1.5 billion worth of real estate and gone full cycle and sold 11 different properties, drastically exceeding projections for our investors. If you're looking to invest with an experienced sponsor in either the Phoenix, Arizona, or Dallas, Texas markets, then we're the group for you. To learn more about investing with us, visit our website at rise48equity.com and set up a call with me. Thank you. Hello, left fielders. At LFI, you know our focus is on networking and education. Mark your calendars because we're going to have a full day of it dedicated to you, our limited partners at the best ever conference on April 9th in Salt Lake City. LFI is opening the BEC with Passive Investing with Left Field Investors, an event focused on passive investors. This will be where insightful content meets passionate, limited partners. If you enjoyed BEC last year and the meetup in Left Field this year, then imagine them both back-to-back. The Best Ever Conference isn't just any event. It's the premier conference for commercial real estate investors and operators. Your ticket to passive investing with Left Field Investors includes admission to the entire Best Ever Conference from April 9th through the 12th. Join us April 9th where we will have a packed agenda with sessions focused on how to be a successful limited partner led by experienced LPs, top operators, and partners. Then, immerse yourself in the full Best Ever Conference where you will be surrounded by like-minded investors, operators, and industry experts for unparalleled opportunities for learning and networking. The best part, and there are so many, but the best part, you won't find a bigger discount on the regular ticket price than the one you get for being an infielder. That's more content for an exclusive lower price. Register for the event today at leftfieldinvestors.com slash BEC, and we will see you at Passive Investing with Left Field Investors at the BEC. I do want to pivot here because you had mentioned adaptive reuse, and um, I think that's where you take a, a building and you, you do something else with it, right? Like you take an yeah. office and convert it to condos. So super interesting changing the asset class. Can you talk about what you're doing in the adaptive reuse space? Absolutely. Uh, before we let go of that capital cost scenario, uh, I, I will say this as, as a GP, okay? The, at least on our side anyway, whenever, whenever there's any type of discussion about doing these types of things, it's not an easy discussion. These things are not taken lightly. I would hope that other GPs are probably the same boat. Yeah. Nobody wants to have to do it. Believe me. I would, I would, I would expect anyway. I mean, I don't want. I certainly don't want to do it. Right. The key here is that it's only done because it's necessary. Like it's in everyone's best interest to find a resolution and get this thing over the line. That's that's. I mean, it, it sucks. Yeah, it does. I mean, I don't, I, what else is there to say? Yeah. <laughs> it does. I mean, but you know what? It's like. It's don't don't think that for any responsible for GP, they're not thinking. Well, screw it. I'm just going to do a capital call. Who cares? No big deal. <laughs> right. if, if that if that is the if that is the the demeanor of the individual, you probably need to find someone else. Yeah. Right. Because this is not it's not to be taken lightly. It sucks. It really does. Yeah. All right. So I want to. I want to leave that there. No, that makes sense. Thank you. It's it's important to know because it isn't like any responsible GP does just take it lightly. So oh, screw it. We're just going to do a capital call. <sighs> Not at all. Not right. at all. Um, so yes, uh, adaptive reuse. The the scenario is uh, taking assets like office and converting them to multifamily. I specifically like doing urban infill. That's that's what I like to do. Urban infill, meaning it's already in the city. It's already, it's already population. There's already people there and they're moving around. There's money being spent in a local area. 
Because if there's activity, there's money. When there's activity, there's money. And I'm looking to find assets that have those individuals already, or those buildings rather, already there. Those people are already there. Those already transactions taking place. And we are able to take the asset, fix the asset, and and then of course you know rent it out and eventually sell it. Right? That's that's typically the play. So, um, but yeah, it, it's right now. There's I think office is still there's still room for office out there, adaptive reuse deals. Um, I think a lot of the stu- a lot of those lenders are going to be taking some of those assets back, and there's going to be a lot more opportunity going forward for sure. And how does it work with the um, with the zoning and, and rezoning? Because it's it's basically development, right? It's not like value add when you buy a, a multifamily and you're just upgrading it, right? It is complete conversion, so it's almost it's not ground up, but it's it's a similar heavy lift. So how does a an LP look at that? and understand, okay, there's permitting issues. There's all these things that have to be done to make sure that you stay on schedule. How, how do we evaluate that as an LP? So let me, let me share with you something that they'll, they'll clue you in, all right? Remember I mentioned three lines of business. We have the net lease. We have the, uh, the stabilized BNC assets, and then we have development. These three assets, their asset classes rather, have three different risk risk indexes, right? With net lease, an investor throws their money in. They usually get their start getting returns, you know, two, three, four months, depending on where where like how how the flow of, of uh, the the, the uh, what, what what the timing is and how fast we're acquiring assets, okay, and, and where it is in the fund. But typically, it happens fairly quickly, okay, with the stabilized C, C, B class assets, you know, you get paid on a quarterly basis and uh, it might take a good, you know, one or two quarters, depending on what the business plan calls for before the investor starts seeing money. On development, it's different. Development, that investor doesn't get paid until the asset is built and cash flowing. So at that point, yes, the the, the, the the assets typically refinance from the construction loans to the permanent loan. There's there's a capital event, and we catch up all the investors for from the time they put their cash in to where you know to the point of getting the the, uh, the refi done. So that's the first thing is to understand as an investor, am I going to be okay not seeing a return for two years or whatever it is to get the asset up and running or developed and then. They have to get it leased up and or whatever whatever the case may be two three years depending on the size of the asset. Okay, that's the first thing I have to figure out. The second thing to figure out is what is the cost of building the asset, right? What is the cost of replacing the asset? So here in, in, in well not here right now in Columbia, but in Cleveland, <laughs> in Cleveland there's you get a lot of you still get so many more benefits to building in Cleveland than versus uh, building somewhere in like. A, uh, a Miami, okay? Why is that? Because in Cleveland, you have two big things that, that are automatically there, opportunity zone and tax abatement, depending on where you're, where the asset is being built, of course, right? These two things make it a powerful combination because if you think of net-net, if I'm going to do an adaptive reuse in Cleveland versus an adaptive reuse in Miami, provided I can even find one over there, the rents will typically be about the same, close. You know, maybe the my, the, my, the Florida ones might be a little more, right? But when you when you have opportunity zone and you have a tax abatement, that is huge. That goes straight to the NOI, where you don't have that in Florida or any other market for that matter. And because it, you're picking the right adaptive reuse, how many vehicles per day are in that market? What else is going on in that market? How, what's the job situation look like? All those different things. It's almost like this very similar metrics to how you would underwrite a C-class asset go into underwriting a, an adaptive reuse or even a ground-up asset. Like what's, what are going to be the drivers? Who's going to be living in that space, right? The, there's always this perception that development is riskier. We, specifically me, I look to de-risk that situation by building these urban infill areas, right? Um, there's always, of course, the, the return targets and all that jazz that you're looking at too. 
uh, you're looking at the cost per unit as well, right? If if it costs for, for me to develop something versus versus uh, building an existing or rather like building one versus buying one. And if it, if it got torn down, I have to rebuild it. If it's still cheaper for me to do an adaptive reuse versus building out a whole brand new one, then clearly it's a value right there. You know what I mean? And then it's also looking at what what is the anticipated NOI? Because really it's NOI that's going to drive the overall value of the asset. So let's say, for instance, we build an asset or I say build like, you know, adaptive reuse type deal. And we think that it might be at a, at a say, a five and a half cap, right? It costs $100 million to build it. But five years from now, if we go to sell it at a five and a half cap, what's the value going to be worth? What's it actually be worth? If it's going to be worth, if we feel it's going to be worth a whole lot more money because based on what's, what else is going on in the market, clearly you're getting a discount to sell it in the future for way more cash. Right. That's another metric that could be used by, uh, by many LPs. Excellent. And so we're, we're getting down to the, to the end on time here, but I, you know, the calendar just turned, so I can't have a podcast without asking the question, what, what's your outlook for 2024 in, in either the multifamily or adaptive reuse or net leases, like in the asset classes you're looking at, how do you, how do you see 2024 panning out? Net lease continues to be a fairly strong asset. I think it's still largely ignored by many people. Um, it's, I love net lease because it's a coupon clipper. Are you going to become a multi multi millionaire? Wait, are you going to invest in, in the uh, in, in my net lease fund and then move to Miami and, and buy a Ferrari tomorrow? No, you will not. It's not going to happen. Sorry, but what you will get is extremely consistent returns. That's the great thing about net lease, right? It's a coupon, seven to ten percent coupon. You you know that's always going to come through about the same time every single month. And ACH is dropped in. Great, you know. So I still think that net lease right now, the, the cap rates are starting to climb back up. Lenders are still, they're, they're, they're now funding these deals again, right? So as long as we're able to pick up that spread, it's, it's getting better, right? Um, it also depends on how you buy it. Like we're doing a lot of owner finance deals these days, believe it or not, in that asset class. It's working out very, very well. So uh, that's what we're doing there. When it comes to um, multifamily, I still think that multifamily is still holding you know, uh, however, a lot of loans are maturing now and many of these folks, they, they either didn't buy a rate cap or they overpaid. A lot of folks overpaid for deals, man. A lot of people overpaid for stuff. I, I don't even know, like there's certain deals that a deal I just looked at the other day. Um, it's in a tertiary market. It was, uh, $450,000. I, I know I can build it for less than that. And the rents for sixteen hundred bucks a month. That deal, I can tell you right now, without doing the math, that deal doesn't cash flow. So if someone would have done that deal twenty four months ago, and now maybe their IO just burned off, now they got to get rid of that thing, or they got to turn it back over to the bank. What's the bank going to do? Hey, Augustino, you there? Want to do a deal? There's there's guys I know. They just been they just they had a relationship with the lender. The lender just said, look here, just just take this deal over, just take it over. We want you to fix it. You know, that's happening. I think it's going to happen a great deal. And the LP investors that, that participate in those deals have, a, there's a lot of opportunities provided that the underwriting makes complete sense. It's got to make sense, right? I will not do stupid deals. I won't do it, right? I just, I, I, if I don't do the deal, I don't have to do the deal. There's guys out there that have to do a deal because they need to, uh, they, they want to pick up their fee. And like I said earlier, I want, I want to be able to sleep at night. Um, so yes, I think that at least at least through twenty five, even, even though rates are coming down, the folks that overpaid for stuff are going to be between a rock and a hard place. Office Office still has a lot of leeway. There's still a long ways to go for Office. I think. I mean, there's always a deal out there, but again, it's it's one of those things. If you're able to develop a relationship directly with a lender and you specialize in adaptive reuse type scenarios, and they're they're aware of it. If you might be able to be in a position to, to get access to those assets, provided you build the relationships now, right? As as a as a person who puts deals together, right? So, but I mean, it isn't like I'm actively going out there and trying to find offices or whatever. I got my plate full anyway right now, as as, as it is. But um, I still think that office still has a ways to go, right? So, 
Excellent. But there's deals out there. There's always deals out there. No matter there are, what. There are always deals. That's true. You just got to find the right ones. So the last question I always ask is what is a great podcast that you listen to? You cannot say bulletproof cash flow because that's already going to be in the show notes. So what's that's going to be my answer. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I said it. That's why I said it. Um, well, incidentally, I don't listen to uh, real estate podcasts because uh, – I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate that I interview so many great, great folks. It's kind of like I almost get a live podcast every time I talk to these guys, right? So it's, it's great, right? Uh, but I will say that um, one of the ones that I listen to, actually, uh, I listen to Tom Bilyeu a lot, actually. Tom Bilyeu is probably one of my favorites, right? And Alex Ramosi, he talks a lot about marketing. Uh, those two are probably the, the, the real top two uh, the ones that, that I listen to, right? And um, really, Tom is really f- focused on mindset and focused on economics and, and, and what's happening in the real world. And Hermosi's focus is business and marketing and sales, which is a big part of what we do. But Tom's information, and I tell this to my students as well, as a fiduciary, as someone that is handling other people's money, you really need to understand how money works, what is going on in the economy, why is it happening, what, what's, what, where's, where's the puck going, how do you understand like, like how, how the game is being played, and I'm using a hockey analogy from my Canadian roots there. But it's, it's extremely important that real estate is not just this right here, right in front of you. Real estate is all-encompassing. It's, 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 it's everywhere. Real estate is all around us, and you have to understand how to a larger extent, how the mechanics work, at least from a high high level. I mean, certainly not going to be an economist doing like doing real estate. That's what I'm saying. But I listen to Tom because he at least covers the broad strokes, right? And if it's something strikes uh, my interest, I go deeper on it. You know. So. Excellent. I'll, I'll put those in the show notes and definitely check that out. So if listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way they can do that? Sure. Bulletproofcashflow.com. Just go there. Uh, we have a variety of ways for investors to uh, to connect with us. Uh, um, you know, they can join the mailing list and we always put out good content all the time for folks. So yeah, check that out. Excellent. Well, thank you for being on the show. We had a great time and uh, appreciate you, uh, you, you talking to us. You bet. You bet. Thank you so much. Investing in syndications can be a daunting task. Wiring a large sum of your hard-earned money to someone you talk to on the phone for 30 minutes can certainly be scary. How can you be confident in what you're doing? Steve Sue, one of the founders of LFI, just published a book called Avoiding Rookie Heirs as a Left Field Investor. 20 lessons learned from 14 years of investing in private syndications. This is by far the best book I've read on syndication investing. It's an easy to read book, chock full of great advice from Steve's experience as a passive investor. It is a must read. Whether you're a first time passive investor or a veteran, go to www.leftfieldinvestors.com books and click on the link to Avoiding Rookie Heirs as a Left Field Investor. If you are a passive investor, you gotta read this book. Visor provides investors with a secure platform that displays a comprehensive view of all of their holdings on a single holistic dashboard. From real estate syndications to private equity, crypto to traditional investments with AI-driven, unbiased, honest insights to maximize return, Visor is your one place to rule them all. Automating performance tracking, projecting future cash flow, analyzing all your financial documents and much more in one powerful solution, making it easy to follow the money. Sign up for a free 30-day trial now at Pfizer.co. That was definitely an interesting conversation with Augustino, and I appreciate him uh, being candid in his in in his conversation with me. And a couple of things that stuck out for, for me is, you know, he wanted to exit the corporate world and, you know, many of us do, and, and some are able to take that step. And what happened was it was a huge risk, right? He was making six figures in the C-suite, but real estate allowed him, because he had been real estate investing on the side, he had enough knowledge and experience to know, hey, if I if I quit my W-2 now, um, I'll be able to either be an active investor, a passive investor, or even become an, a syndicator operator, as he did, because he had that real estate experience. It really is the ticket out in a lot of cases. And I really like the comment he said about the W-2 that pays you, they pay you just enough to keep you from quitting. 
I mean, that hit that hit home, right? It's um, and and that might not be the case for everybody, but it certainly feels like it. Whenever you want to make a move, they're like, "Oh, we just happen to find just a little bit more money for you." At least that's what my my corporate experience was like. And I really like what he was what he was talking about the the person that was late to show for a meeting consistently, and he just said, "You know what? I'm out." It's very similar to how I feel when someone doesn't re- respond or, or reply to an email or or a voicemail when I am trying to vet them as an operator. If you're not going to respond to me in a timely fashion uh, before you have my money, you certainly aren't going to do it after you have my money. And that's enough for me to walk away. And the same for him. Showing up late consistently was enough to walk away. And, and I completely agree with that. Then we really got into uh, capital calls a little bit uh, deeper than I than I had wanted to or that I thought we would. But, you know, the there's a lot of talk about the mandatory capital calls versus the optional where you get diluted and, and avoid the mandatory ones at all costs. And and I get that, but I wanted to get a little bit more context on that from, you know, an operator who has done some deals that have not that he's had capital calls, but the wording in his operating agreement has had the um, capital calls are, are mandatory or you go into default. And depending on the operator, I can see that if you trust the operator, know that they're acting in the best interests of the deal that, you know, having everybody participate is um, is more likely to save the deal, right? There's other operators that have had that um, dilution, and those deals that I, I've been in, a couple of those have just completely fell apart because they couldn't raise additional capital. Now, I'm glad those were optional because those particular operators I don't have a whole lot of confidence in anymore. But if I had confidence in them, I would want everyone to participate. So I don't think it's as black and white as as sometimes uh, we, we look at it. It's an interesting conversation for sure. And the key is to make sure that you read the operating agreement and that you know which one it is and that you only invest if you're comfortable with the wording of that clause and everything else in the operating agreement. And this is another reason why I am trying to get better at really reading the documents. Um, you know, I confess that I didn't do that as well in the early years, and it's gotten me into some situations that uh, that I'm not super happy about. So I'm trying to do a better job at that. You know, we're all learning. And then, you know, urban adaptive reuse. I really like the 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 office buildings, right? There, there's trouble in office buildings in downtown areas, especially if they're not super class A. So repurposing these as something else other than office, you you put them into multifamily, put in condos, just a really interesting asset class. And I really liked what Augustino said is where there is activity, there is money. So if you're picking these downtown areas, make sure there's a lot of activity and growth there, then there's going to be money because all the you know, multifamily talk is concentrated on the the growth states, the Sun Belt, the Smile states, all of that. But some of these, you know, adaptive reuse. He was talking about Cleveland. You know, that is not necessarily a growth area, but where there's activity, there is money. So that was super interesting to me. Really enjoyed my conversation with Augustino, and we'll be keeping an eye on him as we go forward. That's all we have for this time. We'll catch you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestor.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts would be appreciated. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.